Zach Servideo here with Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Jason Burke, the Chief Strategy Officer of Clipped. Jason, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming in, Zach. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I just saw on Twitter that you have run in so many Boston marathons and uh, had qualifying times in at least the last 10 years such that you get to like have this special um, uh, starting line treatment at the at the 2020 Boston Marathon. Is that is that true? Uh, yeah. So they give uh, the as unlike any other marathon in the country, um, Boston has um, uh, really strict standards around um, qualification standards, and um, it's also in high demand. So um, for those that have a streak. Um, they get to go to the front of the line. So um, I, I've actually, this will be my 25th in a row. So nice. um, as as someone with 10 plus, you get to the front of the line. So That's awesome. um, yeah, so I, I started running, I started running Boston. Um, my first Boston was when I was 16. I, I was, I actually ran unofficially. Um, I was in high school and ran my first one across the finish line and said, absolutely never again. <laughs> and here we are, you know, 25 years later and um, still doing this every year. But I mean, it, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the, one of the best uh, athletic events or even just, you know, events period in the, in the world. And I, I try to, I try to make a point to not take it for granted. Um, it's, it's hard to, to do that when you grew up in the area and, and it seems like, you know, it's just one of these random local events, but it's, it's really amazing every year um, during marathon weekend to see so many people from all over the world um, arriving in Boston. And this is their dream to come mm-hmm. to the Boston marathon for once. So I try to, uh, you know, uh, st- slow down and smell the roses and realize how, how uh, fortunate I am to, to live in the area and be able to do this every year. And that's great. Yeah, you're, you're very mindful about it. I can see I, reading you in person, sometimes for listeners, they don't get an opportunity to get those, those little things, but you're like very mindful of, of the, and have a lot of gratitude for all the that string of 25 Boston marathons you've been in. I kind of wanted to start with that because I wanted to emphasize right off the bat, because a lot of listeners at Boston know they're going to be interested to hear from you as, um, as a product engineer, as, as a, as a chief strategy guy at a really um, interesting and innovative uh, tech company out in Davis square. Uh, also as a, as an angel investor and a startup advisor. And I just named like, three different careers that any person would be happy to have. And you have all three of them and you've run 25 consecutive Boston marathons. So clearly you're a very driven person. Um, so I, you know, I do want to get into what clips doing and, and a bit of your career today, but I'm just curious, like going back in time, you grew up in Waltham. Tell me a bit about your childhood and, and what, what you attribute that sort of drive that you have to have so many um, focuses at once. Cause then you're also a dad, you have a six year old, you have a nine year old. Um, So it's really, it's really impressive. Um, So I'm grateful for the time because clearly you have a lot of hats that you wear in life and you um, wear them proudly. And so, so yeah. So where does, where does that drive come from? And, and, you know, you mentioned in your pre podcast, you know, Q and a, that your parents made it such that you and your two two other siblings, uh, you know, could pursue whatever you want in life. So I imagine your parents are a big catalyst in, in the man that you are today. But 
um, feel free to sort of unpack that a little bit. I'd love to sort of like learn a little bit more about Jason Burke, like the young Bostonian who's sort of grown into this um, this this man that we um, have the privilege of speaking to today. Sure, sure. So, <clears throat> um, always enjoy talking about my. Um my time growing up, I'm really proud of that. Grew up as as you uh, as you just mentioned in Waltham, um, suburb of Boston, about 20 minutes outside of the city. Um, had a really fortunate childhood um, and environment in which I grew up. Um, lots of friends and family around, um, and uh, and our parents. My uh, I have two siblings. Um, I'm the oldest. I have a a sister and a brother. Um, we're fortunate to have parents that supported us, um, allowed us to take the paths in life that each of us wanted to do. And we're very, very different people. Um, I, Zach, you just described some of the things I'm doing in the technology world as a, as a runner. Uh, my sister um, is, uh, is the smart one amongst us in uh, having a PhD in social work. Um, and she, uh, she went to Boston College, uh, got her bachelor's and master's there, and, and went out to Arizona State and got her PhD in, in social work. Um, my brother is the most interesting amongst us um, in that he, um, uh, at the age of five years old, knew what he wanted to do. And if you ask, ask around, you know, what, what, you know, what does any little boy want to do? He wants to be a firefighter or astronaut. And, and chances are what you want to be when you're five years old. That's, that's not what you end up, uh, end up being. Um, Tim wanted to be a pilot, uh, at, at five years old. And he, and he made that happen. He was, uh, he was, he was flying planes before he had his driver's license. Um, turns out he realized he was, um, he was, he has a slight colorblindness so that needed and uh, forced him to adjust his path um, where he's still in the aviation world but um, not flying commercially but what he's doing right now um, is over the last two years he's been doing solo motorcycle trips around the world so he's uh, circumnavigated uh, Europe uh, South America and right now he's in Africa so uh, wow. yesterday he entered Zimbabwe um, on his own um, he, he takes pictures he takes pictures in these places um, has over 50,000 followers on Instagram. Tim Burke photo, um, is his handle. Amazing pictures, amazing stories. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, am happy to be part of, uh, Amy and Tim's, uh, you know, ride their coattails with, uh, with their successes, but our, our parents allowed us to, you know, um, supported us in everything we wanted to do, allowed, allowed me to attend Tufts university. Uh, Amy went to Boston college, supported Tim, with everything that he wanted to do. Um, we didn't necessarily have um, all of the money in the world to be able to go to these very expensive colleges uh, and, um, and and take on and be able to participate in all of these events, but they somehow made it happen. Um, so very grateful for that experience. And, and I think that has helped, um, uh, you know, helped, helped all of us get to where we are today. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So Tim Burke photo. Timberg photo. Timberg yeah. photo. I'm going to have to check that out after this podcast. It sounds so we can follow along as, as a journey across the globe. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, so let's talk a little bit. First, you know, we're sitting here in this beautiful, you know, I don't even want to call it an office because we're like the setting we're in right now is a living is a living room setting. But Clift has really unique uh, offices here in Davis Square, um, which is where we're recording this podcast today. Talk to Talk to me a bit and, and share with listeners 
what it is that you're doing at Clipped um, and and why you're you know, dedicating so much energy to, to Clipped's mission. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, at, at a, at a 25,000-foot view, um, Clipped is, is bringing data and technology to the world of TV advertising. Um, and, and doing this, building products and, um, and, and tools and services uh, to make TV advertising better. Um, so what does that mean? That's, you know, that, that means um, enabling brands and media companies to uh, buy and sell advertising that is more effective. Um, so what we're focused on doing is, um, or what, what the, one of the original visions of Clipped um, was, 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 is in, was in recognizing some of the aspects of digital advertising that has, uh, that, um, uh, that was very well, that, that allowed digital advertising to be a very successful um, venture and recognize that the much bigger market of, of uh, television advertising, it's about a $70 billion market in the United States, $220 billion worldwide, um, could stand to benefit from some of those same innovations. Um, and our mission was to bring those innovations, bring those tools and, and, and opportunities to the world of TV. Um, so we're about seven years into the mission. Um, 40 people in the company um, headquartered here in, in Davis Square, Somerville, with uh, a about 30 folks here in Somerville. We have a team um, of about uh, seven or eight in New York City, and we also have um, a handful of developers in Pune, India. Um, and you know, it's uh, it, it's it's been a real uh, focus on both building product as well as building relationships across um, the the mass media companies and um, and brands of the uh, of the world. Cool. It's it's impressive that you know you have sort of a who's who list of of major media companies, brands, TV networks that you work with, and you have the, you have a New York office. You mentioned you have about you know, seven eight people there. Your headquarters is here, and we'll just say let's say you know Boston. Talk to me about the advantage of being in Boston and building a disruptive technology company. For the television advertising industry, like I, I, I would love to unpack that a bit for the Boston community in particular. Like I have my own assumptions and a bit from from conversing with you in the past. But talk to me a bit about some of the advantages you have, specifically having clipped headquarters here in the Boston area, here specifically in Davis Square. Sure, sure. So um, I'll, I'll sort of uh, make my way into answering uh, some of the. Some of the real benefits we have in building this company or headquartering this company in Boston, but um, we are in the TV, uh, the TV industry, and building technology. So it's key for us to have um, some of the the world's best engineers, product uh, product managers, um, data scientists on the team, and um, and it's also really important to have the appropriate business development people in place with the relationships within these media companies. And we recognize that early on in in. Um, in that we couldn't just take um, some of the the digital experience that several of us have. I mean, in my my experience prior to um, prior to Clipped was in uh, building optimization products for digital video. Uh, but we recognized that um, uh, it, it, despite some success that several of us have had in the digital advertising space, um, to to move that into the world of television required us to invest in TV DNA. So. A lot of our New York City office is um, sales and business development folk who have grown up in the TV landscape, um, who have relationships at the at the top of the 
you know, massive media companies like Disney and Discovery and Fox and A&E. And that's really, really important. Um, yes, you need to build good product, uh, but you also need to break down those doors and evangelize what you're doing. Um, that's sort of how, uh, you know, how these teams mesh together. Um, we've had a lot of success in building out the technology team and product management team here in um, in Davis Square, a lot of us, uh, a lot of the, the early folks from the company are um, are based in Boston, and that's that's uh, that's that's part of the reason for the headquarters being here. But we have so much technology talent um, in the Boston area, um, and it, it you know we've we've uh, been we've been really successful at um, at teaching each other internally um, with the business folks teaching. Um, the engineers and, and the product management team here in Boston about TV and, uh, and, and vice versa as far as how these products are built, um, that sort of education happening outwards with, uh, with the business development folks. But um, you know, there's just so much talent in Boston, such a collaborative community across different companies, um, lots of companies trying to solve the same general problem, not necessarily TV advertising, but trying to build a business, trying to... Um, move quickly and uh, be able to adopt new technologies. Um, there's a lot of collaboration um, amongst companies to help each other um, uh, all be successful. Great. So I'd love to kind of cover the gap between you graduating at Tufts and here at Clip today and sort of a little more detail on the products you were building early on, your work at ScanScout and ultimately Tremor Video and what led you into Clipped, uh, if you could kind of give some background on that. And it, it is interesting. It's not lost to me that we're sitting here in Davis Square and we're almost a stone's throw away from Tufts, where you went to school, where there's tons of engineering talent right there, never mind Harvard in the other direction and MIT and so on and so forth and the many schools here. Uh, and having been in the – this is a unique podcast for, for me because – you and I work in the same industry. So broadly speaking, we, uh, we speak and, 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 and know a lot of the same people. And, and some of the founders that I know, like Frank Sinton from Beachfront is a Tufts grad from Lexington that built a really disruptive video ad technology business. And, and it, it does seem to me that oftentimes roads lead back to engineers from Boston in TV ad tech land and just sort of in, 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 in ad tech land and just tech land more broadly. So um, completely get it. The, t- the talent pool is just amazing. But, but talk to me a bit about all the opportunities that you were afforded coming out of Tufts and kind of what led you down the, the track that you were on, some of the things you built that, that led you to Clip today. Sure, sure. So I can talk about how I actually landed at Tufts. Um, Tufts was actually the only school that I applied to. Um, I, I fell in love with it um, as, uh, immediately after, after visiting the school in early, uh, early, early months of my senior year of, uh, of high school. Um, I, I, as, as, as we discussed uh, with um, the stories about the Boston Marathon, I, um, I, was a, I was a runner in high school and um, did want to run in college. Um, and my dad and I came over to meet the coach and, um, and meet some of the guys on the team who helped, you know, who, who gave us a tour of the campus and fell in love with it. Um, and I also, uh, it, 
you know, I, I, I knew about the school um, uh, early in life uh, because my, my grandfather is, is a graduate. Um, he, uh, he, he graduated uh, exactly 50 years from when I graduated in 1999. So um, it, was, it, was, it was neat to be able to attend the same school that he did. Um, and so that's what got me into Tufts. And during my time at Tufts, I, um, I had a unique major. It was called engineering psychology. There's only uh, two two schools in the country at the time that had that, um, Tufts University and the University of Maryland. Um, and what engineering psychology is, is, is bringing, um, uh, bringing together the human, uh, incorporating uh, engineering and technology into, uh, in, or taking into account the human that will be using whatever product is being engineered. Um, so one uh, branch of that is ergonomics, you know, mm-hmm. building a, a steering wheel that works with the way that, you know, the, the, the arms and, and, and hands and, and, um, and eyes are expecting um, from a, you know, from a, from a aesthetic, both, both, both aesthetic and, um, and, um, and design point of view. Um, the other branch is the software usability. So that's, that's the sort of branch that I focused on. And as part of that, uh, took a lot of uh, computer science, uh, computer science classes and really uh, developed a passion for building software. Um, so that, you know, led me to, uh, led me to, to go down the path of being a, a software engineer. So my first several jobs, I was an engineer and I, I like to, to, to describe myself as right now a recovering engineer. I no longer am an engineer. Um, but a lot of the, uh, a lot of what I picked up in my first several jobs in building software, um, has, you know, still comes into play with, um, with some of the roles I've had in product management uh, with technical teams, as well as business development strategy, um, understanding how the product works, understanding the limitations is really, really important um, as you create partnerships, as you figure out, you know, what paths to take as, as an overall business, uh, but spent time at, at, at companies like Capital One. Um, and, and we mentioned earlier ScanScout um, and, and ScanScout was my first foray into ad tech. I didn't necessarily um, have any uh, specific desire to get into ad tech, I was, I was introduced uh, to a co-founder, uh, one of the co-founders at, at ScanScout, um, which was a, a startup in Boston building, um, uh, building a video ad network for, uh, a, a, an ad network for digital video. Um, and this was soon after Google acquired YouTube. Um, so it, there was, you know, it was, it was, it was essentially a, a fact that digital video was going to, to skyrocket and advertising would be a big part of that. Um, ScanScout was going to um, uh, build tools, build optimization uh, tools for um, uh, making advertising in the world of digital video better. Um, went into uh, went into ScanScout and um, I played a role as a, as a sales, sales engineer, um, essentially uh, uh, straddling the line between technology and business. Um, and that was my first, uh, well, one of my first moves into, you know, outside of direct engineering. Um, and it was, uh, you know, uh, somewhat transitioning down uh, to the other end of the spectrum towards the business side. Um, but with sales engineering, um, you're, you're able to, to straddle that line and play a little bit of both. Um, and uh, during my time at Scanska, which is about six or seven years, I uh, moved into product management um, and after after Scan Scout, I, I wanted to use a lot of this uh, this understanding of how the advertising uh, advertising world works, and um, and be able to apply that to a much bigger space in, in TV advertising. And that's where we are at Clipped. Um, so my first few years at Clipped, I was uh, I was I was running the product management group, um, and um, over the last uh, the last three years, 
uh, transition to a strategy role. So with, with strategy, I'm working with uh, groups across the con- uh, across the company, from engineering to product to business development, um, and also with groups outside of the company, partners um, and uh, potential customers. And, and really, what what strategy, what what someone in a strategy role is looking at is not necessarily what are we going to do over the next zero to twelve months, but when we look out 18 months, 24 months, 36 months, where is the hockey puck going? Where, what do we have to do to make sure that we're there when that puck goes there? Um, what partnerships do we need to put in place? What uh, products do we need to build so that we're ready for those, those, those changes that will happen? Um, so a lot of this is, you know, really rubbing the crystal ball to, to predict what will happen and then making moves to, uh, to, to make sure that we're there when it does happen. That's really interesting. So I imagine you don't, and perhaps you do miss product engineering a bit, but you still, because of the chief strategy role you have, you're still informing product. And so is it safe to say you don't necessarily miss the product stuff because you're still participating in product, but you get to participate in like the grander picture. Yeah, that's exactly it is. um, Yeah. Uh, no one can do everything, yeah. uh, but by uh, as, as as you as you um, elegantly described, you, you're able to play in that world a bit. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things I, I I was a little bit concerned with when I left the world of engineering um, and and moved into um, a, a sales engineering role. Um, uh, was you know am I going to miss uh, coding um, right. and I you know the the, the path I've taken uh, where I haven't made drastic changes but I've made slow moves across the spectrum have allowed me to continue to dabble in um, in my previous you know in, in what I was you know focused on focusing on previously. Cool. I have a few follow up questions to that that sort of will lead us into a conversation about some of your angel investing and, and, and startup advising. But first I want to go back and double click, click on a couple of things you said back at Tufts. So the major was engineering psychology. That's really interesting. The, uh, do you remember Wade Rausch, executive editor of Economy for about a decade? The from like 2007 familiar. to yeah. 2014. He has a new podcast called Soonish where he's like talking about the relationship historically and present between technology and humans. And, and in, in a lot of ways, this is maybe perhaps a bit too pointed a way to put it, but with the coming age of automation and 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 uh, and so many things around uh, data and you know disparate data sets coming together to inform like machines, which are learning and developing into these artificial you know AIs, uh, trying to give um, and, and trying to take these really complex topics and, and explain them in as much layman terms as possible to, to for people to understand that at the end of the day it's humans interaction with technology that will always play, you know, can and should always impact how those technologies play a role in our lives. Um, so that's a really interesting major. I imagine the time you went to school when it was one of only two programs, my hope would be that there's many more programs like it now. Cause I feel like that is, um, perhaps one of the more critical, um, disciplines people could, could could focus on these days so just curious if you have any uh, extra fodder on that I'd, I'd be curious to hear it and then I'll, I'll hold my other toughs question for after yeah I think there's, there's very few things um, where removing the human completely um, will um, not result in complete disaster right. so if you think about uh, autonomous vehicles um, it, you know the uh, completely 
using software to determine how or for, for the car to determine how to you know change lanes or brake um, without any input from humans um, it, we, we don't need to brainstorm on, on the on the possible um, bad things that can happen with that but you know in the in you know if we bring it back to the context of, of clipped or a- advertising um, there's a there is a lot of fear in the industry um, and this fear happened with digital companies um, and now as, as programmatic and, and data-driven decisioning is making its way to TV, fear of the indus- uh, fear from the industry around, is this going to take my job away? Sure. Is, is, uh, is, you know, a salesperson saying, well, if, if computers can make decisions on uh, which inventory, where, where these ads should be placed, do I need, is there a job for me anymore? And absolutely there's a job. There is a human, uh, human aspect to this. There's, there are subjective decisions that need to be made right. around, around advertising. It's not only a matter of a computer determining or predicting who that actual person is behind the, uh, behind the, the, the laptop screen, watching the video, um, or holding the, the, uh, the, the iPhone, uh, to determine which mobile ad to serve or, or watching the TV. Um, there's subjective pieces to that as well. Um, there's also a lot of strategy that goes into negotiation um, that can't be handled by um, uh, by technology on its own. Um, so I, too, also hope that engineering psychology isn't only at two colleges or at least yeah. the some of those... Um, so that, that, that human element is being incorporated into the way that... Um, that uh, technology education is um, is uh, is happening um, nowadays because um, uh, it's it's a fine balance between um, you know having too much you know uh, enabling enabling technology or enabling innovation to to leverage all of the benefits all of the speed all of the the logic that comes with technology um, with the necessary human element. Yeah, well said. So my other tough follow up. And you made the math easy for me. You graduated from Tufts in 99. That means grandpa graduated in 49, 1949. So, so share, like, share with listeners, as you shared in the pre-podcast um, questionnaire, but, I, but I'd love for you to expand what, what grandpa did. And, and in particular, his, his role um, in uh, helping the Apollo missions. Sure, yeah. sure. So, um, yeah, so I think... I think uh, grandpa was was one of the um, one of the factors in uh, in my making my way into um, uh, the the technology world. He was he was an electrical engineer. He graduated high school at sixteen years old, um, young, and um, was able to get into a special program with uh, within uh, the, the Boston Navy Yard where. Um, some MIT professors were teaching classes for. Um, uh, very bright students or very bright young people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford college. So he was able to take some classes um, with, you know, real MIT professors and um, really fell in love with engineering. Um, ended up going to ended up going to Tufts and um, became an electrical engineer. Um, and um, following Tufts, uh, he he ended up working with MIT uh, Lincoln Laboratories um, as well as uh, Draper Labs. And at Draper Labs, he was um, working on some projects that were focused on radars that would be used on the Apollo missions. So um, it's a handful of a uh, handful of pictures in some, some old newspapers of him working on some of the radars that were part of uh, putting uh, Neil Armstrong on the moon, the first man on the moon. So um, it was, uh, I, you know, if I, 
if you have to if you have to compare that to um, optimizing where an ad shows up on TV, uh, while <laughs> we love to believe that we're doing uh, some some amazing work, and we absolutely are in the, in, in in ad tech. Um, I think uh, I think my grandfather puts uh, puts me to shame with uh, with helping put um, with helping put a human being on on the moon. Wow! So, Grandpa, in the same universe, but in another world. Uh, that's a really cool story. You know, you just there's another begs a follow up question. I absolutely love hearing that there was this program in you know the mid 20th century in Boston to help student or young people who otherwise wouldn't have the financial means to get an education at at an MIT and start taking some classes and scratch those itches um, that they had in sort of more um, technology-oriented, engineering-oriented um, jobs. How do you feel Boston's doing today in 2019 for helping underprivileged youth gain access to education in what is, as we've discussed in this podcast with Boston Public Schools, it's a tech-driven Boston labor market. It's a tech-driven world labor market. And so it's really important to have those types of programs. And it's great that that existed back then. Do you feel the city is catching, is, is keeping up with the needs of the underprivileged here? Is it something you can speak to or have you noticed any programs you, you've seen that you point people to? Yeah, it, it is. It's absolutely really important for um uh, for diversity, uh, you know, for, uh, across, you know, not only technology, but uh, across all areas. And um, we're fortunate in the Boston area to have so many great schools. Um, one of the downsides is that these schools are very, very expensive. Right. Um, and um, if we don't find ways to allow for, you know, opportunities for everyone to attend, um, no matter what their um, you know, family background is with respect to, you um, uh, uh, income levels or um, where they grew up or sexual orientation, we're going to end up with a, uh, you know, a, a, a not a, a lack of diversity um, with those that are coming out of these colleges and starting companies. Um, and that's, right. you know, there's, there's a lot of downsides to that. Um, so um, the, the, the good thing about a lot of these schools is that they also do have, uh, they do have a big endowments and um, are very generous with financial aid, which does allow for um, uh, providing opportunities for underprivileged or, or, or folks that um, come from families that, you know, otherwise wouldn't be able to afford these schools. It's also yeah. programs like Youth Cities that are um, creating entrepreneurship uh, uh, education um, to help um, high school students understand how to run businesses mm-hmm. uh, and not only just, you know, how to, you know, do how, how to how to grow a team and and how to think about go to market but everything from um, from raising money to um, uh, to hire how, how to hire lawyers to how to think about you know building an engineering team versus building a sales team and and that's 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 really important you, you have other groups like resilient coders that are doing similar things and bringing uh, bringing um, engineering opportunities to um, you know, diverse, uh, you know, diverse set of, uh, of youth. Um, and, and these things are, are necessary. You know, I'm, t- I'm speaking to several that, um, that exist in Boston, but, um, I think these sort of things, uh, exist in various pockets across the country. And, um, there's no, um, we, we can't have too many of those. Um, sure. and, and, 
um, these should exist in all you know all parts of the country. Great. Yeah, I'm familiar with resilient coders. Youth Cities is a new one for me. I just I just Googled it and bookmarked it, so I can kind of look looked it up and, and um, discover a bit more material about it and, and share it with some of the the like minds in, in my own network that are always looking to make sure that they have the as as much of an expansive um, list of of options for for folks, particularly like underprivileged folks, uh, to seek out and continue. Uh, an education path that maybe isn't the most traditional by um, um, by the sort of standard in sort of the standard ways we think about it. Oh, graduate high school, go to college. Uh, a lot of people can't do that, and a lot of people start working, and maybe they have kids, or maybe they're supporting family, and so it's really interesting. Like that's that's what I love about the Resilient Coders program is sort of giving people who maybe uh, sort of surpass the years when it's typically um common you know 18 to 22 to go to college and they're in their 20s and they're like ah that oppor- those opportunities passed me by no, no no they did not there's some programs for you so uh, so yeah no really need to appreciate you um weighing in on that so let's talk a bit about some of the um some of the investing and advising work that you do in the city uh, it's just a few months ago, you took on like a, a, a role as an uh, as an advisor at Underscore VC, working in a new program just for first time entrepreneurs, which I'd love to learn more about. Just curious, like how many years? You know, so so how many years have you been sort of an active participant, mentoring, advising, investing startups, and uh, are there particular types of first-time entrepreneurs and, and startup businesses that you're keenly interested in learning about? Because obviously, Boston O skews a bit young. There's a lot of first-time entrepreneurs probably listening. And so I'm sure they'd be interested in um, tips for, you know, things that are, you know, in, angels and mentors are particularly interested in in helping. Um, and, and just, you know, generally speaking, sort of what are the things that, that you see um, coming out of Boston that are really helping shape the future? So I started angel investing um, about three or four years ago. And uh, angel investing, for, for those that don't know, is uh, really early stage uh, investing in, in companies that may not even have a product um, uh, or, or any revenue to speak about. Um, but providing that you know one of the first checks into that company to allow them to start to build out a team, allow them to start to build the business, um, and it's making a bet on um, on on that company, on the on the people within the company, on the products they're building, and um, you know there's different angel investors have different you know, prioritize those three legs of the stool being um, the people, the market, um, and the product. Um, my most important um, area amongst those three is people. people um, yeah. I, I think that the right people can pivot if mm-hmm. the market, you know, the market changes. Um, the right people may decide in the uh, the wrong product. The, the product they're focused on may turn out to not be the right one. The market, the the, the customers may provide feedback that they don't need that product, but the right people can um, uh, can can roll with those punches. Um, and so that's that. You know, that's what I'm looking at. I'm also looking at um, yes, the people, but also uh, are those people able to, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, predict the future? Are they sure. able to um, predict where 
where the industries are moving, what pains uh, are going to be uh, are, are uh, either upon us or will be upon us, um, and build businesses to uh, to um, address those uh, address those needs. So I, I started doing uh, doing that about three or four years ago. Um, I, I look at angel investing as an asset class, um, similar to you know we may. Uh, put put away some of our salary into a 401k for retirement. We may have a uh, you know have a, a, a stock brokerage account with us, say an Ameritrade, and we put a little bit of money into that. We have money in the bank. Um, I look at, at angel investing as an as an asset class. It's just an, another area to in, invest some money. It's very high, It's very risky. Um, most uh, you know it's. Uh, the, the world of entrepreneurship is um, is uh, glamorized, but it's one. It's a very tough thing to build a business, and uh, the the reality is that most businesses fail. So um, investments in those businesses um, are likely to fail as well. Um, but um, there is also huge huge upside to have uh, to have an investment in a company that does does succeed. Um, so one of the things you know when I when I look at um, uh, when I look at uh, the companies I want to invest in. I also uh, I keep an eye on would I be interested in helping this company, and, that, and that's one of the the things. Yes, this is an investment for me, but it's also an opportunity to help uh, help entrepreneurs, whether it's a first time entrepreneur or a serial entrepreneur, um, avoid the same uh, bumps in the road that I know I've I've um, run into throughout my career. Uh, provide that outside perspective. Um, on you know providing um, guidance on on decisions that need to be made for the company, um, the entrepreneur is uh, is the one most intimate with his or her business. Um, but an outside point of view with all decisions we make in life is always helpful to, to just get someone who's not one hundred percent focused on that twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, um, and to provide their perspective. So that's one of the things I look for with uh, with with the companies that I invest in is how 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 might I be able to provide some um, some guidance and um, and also will I enjoy working with those entrepreneurs as they go on their journey to to you know to change the world in, in whatever they're doing. Um, so I, you know, I I, um, I incorporate mentorship into my angel investments, and I also, um, as as you were mentioning earlier, Zach, um, I um, helping out some uh, first time entrepreneurs through Underscore VCs um, You First program, um, and You First is an accelerator an accelerator program for twelve first time founders. Um, so I'm working with a company, um, Anthelion, um, where the, the founders are building, uh, incorporating AI into video codecs, um, and really, uh, facing all of the, all of the challenges that any startup faces around figuring out what their, what their strategy is, their go to market plan. How do they start to evangelize their offering with, uh, with potential customers, with raising money, with, with building a team. There's so much more in building a business. Um, that goes beyond what are we going to build and how are we going to build it. Um, just so many operational pieces, um, and you know, under the, there's a handful of um, uh, of of the VCs in the Boston area that are doing really great things for the Boston community. Underscore uh, underscore being one of them with with a handful of their initiatives. Um, Jeff Fagnan at at Accomplice has has started a scout program, which is which is a uh, a, a flavor of um, you know pre, uh, of, of angel investors that that um, are finding finding new companies uh, to uh, to invest in. Uh, Pillar.vc has a, a unique investment strategy around alignment with uh, with the founders and, and changing 
the the way that a VC usually takes equity within a company with, that they invest in, and and all of these things are really founded on creating community and, and strengthening the entrepreneurial um, environment with within Boston. And, and it's great to see this happening in Boston. Um, I was having a conversation with Michael Scott, one of the partners at, at Underscore um, last week, and, and he was uh, that 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 VC, uh, the, the, VC the, the Underscore as a whole is um, is very, very bullish in Boston. But Michael, uh, who has who has a lot of great experience um, throughout his career, is um, is 100% convinced that over the next uh, the next many years, Boston will continue to be the, the place yeah. for uh, for investors to put money on on early stage startups. Great, my name. Talk to Michael for the podcast. Uh, maybe I, I think I know someone to make that happen. Um, talk to some of the some listeners may be aspiring angel investors. So, how does one become? an angel investor do you have to become an accredited invest investor like just i mean you don't have to spend too much time on it but that may be that it begs the question like oh how do you become an angel investor and 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 and, and, and how did you and and what uh what led you to and what sort of boxes did you check in order to you know take what is higher risk but in in your way really sort of like giving back um a community that's enriched your own life mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I won't go into too much detail on on some of the some of the um, uh, some of the rules around angel investing. The SEC does have rules around um, uh, uh, accreditation, accredited investors, and uh, but there are uh, um, some um, some structures in place to allow for um, either I'll just call it quote unquote anyone to angel invest or. Uh, and or for people to invest small amounts of money, um, and these are, uh, are you know the, the family of this or the, the, the category that I'm referring to is, is syndicates, um, and, and a syndicate is really a bunch of investors all together pooling money um, and investing in a company. So they, the the benefit to the company is that they're just getting one check from Acme Syndicate. Um, that syndicate has a uh, a, a lead um, who is sort of managing all of the called the heavy lifting and working with all the angel investors to get, you know, getting, getting Zach's check, getting Jason's check, um, cashing that, working with lawyers to put together the paperwork. And, and as, as part of that, the lead of the syndicate, um, uh, gets compensated, um, through something called carried interest. Um, but, um, at the end of the day, it allows for Zach and Jason to each put in, let's say a thousand dollars into, um, into a startup, um, as part of the overall syndicate, which might be putting in, let's say, you know, a hundred thousand um, dollars, and it's just a way for um, one for Zach and Jason to both be able to throw many darts out at different um, at at different startups, um, because if if they're writing smaller checks in say the thousand dollar range, and let's say Zach and Jason each have say fifteen thousand dollars they want to invest, they can they can throw fifteen darts. Um, uh, versus writing one fifteen thousand dollar check, as I mentioned, the uh, the the success rate is low. Um, so you need to throw many darts. Um, so the only way that happens is if you you know, and if you have a, a particular budget, is to be able to um, invest and in, in, in make bets on um, on many different companies versus um, versus uh, putting it all you know putting all the chips on black. Um, yeah. And yes. If 
black or if you know putting all the chips on on one one number on the uh on the, on the roulette table turns out to be uber that's great um but uh the the best way to diversify is to um spread those investments across many different companies sure appreciate that perspective because it kind of gives it it's a it's a different vantage point to sort of articulate essentially what ends up netting out as a friends and family round which i think oftentimes people don't unpack to understand that like a lot of friends and family rounds are like, yeah, it's, it's some friends and family. And it's, it's oftentimes like several, you know, it's, it's angels like that sort of pull money together for those like early hundred thousand dollar rounds. Um, so thank you for that. That fascinating. There's, there's a company you mentioned in the, in the uh, pre podcast questionnaire uh, remote HQ, which I checked out. It seems really cool. Um, what's your relationship with remote H- HQ? Is it that, that a company you want to tell the Boston community about a bit more? Sure. So um, I, I mentioned earlier that one of my uh, uh, the most important things I focus on in um, making decisions around the companies in which I invest is people. Um, so the founder of Remote HQ is a, is a really good friend of mine. He's actually also the co-founder of ScanScout, and, and um, uh, he was the one who um, I was introduced to and, and, and made my way into uh, into ScanScout, and we've become close friends. Um, so he started Remote HQ um about two years ago, and really recognizing the need for uh, uh, remote collaboration ac- across sales teams within big organizations, um, and they're building uh, building tools to uh, allow for exactly that for for sales teams to have tools that are uh, cloud based tools that allow them to more efficiently sell into uh, sell whatever their product is, whatever that sales team's product is into uh, big potential customers and breaking down a lot of the barriers that exist today um, without, you know, without some of this, uh, some, of, some of this efficiency and, and uh, this, uh, that, that entrepreneur is Wykit Lau and, and Wykit has also done a really good job with um, uh, putting together his team and, and he's, he's a, he's a big proponent of remote working um, so he has a small team right now. I, I believe, uh, you know, I believe the team is in the uh, is in the single digit range um, where everyone is in a different location. Mm-hmm. He's he's been able to find very high quality talent um, literally across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also eating their own dog food with respect yeah. to using their own product to collaborate across the team as, as they, you know, uh, as they. You know, go about their day to day, and I think that's that's one of the the best ways to do product management uh, to to uh, to build product is if you're feeling the pain that your customers will feel when they use your product, then um, you you really understand you know what 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 features are needed, what problems need to be solved, uh, and yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a big believer in 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 Wykit in, in building a business, and I'm also um, been very impressed with the product they've built and the market they're going after. Cool, yeah. Just from poking around the the website and it's some good visuals of of the t- uh, remote um, colleagues all working together. I thought to myself, wow, I'd love to have this as a layer on top of my Slack universe and all the different. I mean, you're you know you're the chief strategy guy at Clipped, and you're working with your team here and your team in New York and and partners all across the, the country. I, I just, it's really visually um, the manner in which you can sort of take um, windows that you're speaking with people and, 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 and enlarge them. And, and like the cut, the customization around um, these sort of video con- conferencing elements of it and the, um, you know, the real time collaboration element of it just seemed very, um, 
slick and fluid to me. Um, so yeah, so imp- impressive stuff. So so check it out. W- w- how do you have time to run? By the way, what like talk to me about your what's your running schedule these days with all these you got uh, your run you know your chief strategy at Clips you got your mentoring companies um, through underscore VC Angel mentor to, to to several other companies uh, you have a nine year old daughter six year old son when does Jason Burke run because you run marathons so like you have to you, you need some time to train for that. Yeah, so I, I think one of the one of the things that's important for all of us to um, uh, to make sure we uh, we we focus on is ourselves, um, and it's it's very easy to get caught up um, in um, you know, the the doing your doing all of your daily chores, the food shopping, the picking up the kids, and um, as as entrepreneurs building building the business, and there's always something to do. Um, but we can't uh, forget to think about our, you know, our own health, um, whether that's with exercise or nutrition. Um, so, uh, you know, outside of my love for running, I also, you know, do this, uh, do this for, you know, to, to keep myself healthy. Um, it also keeps me sane, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, and I also, I'm also able to do a little bit of my work in parallel to the running. You know, I solve a lot of problems that or you know think through a lot of problems on these runs. I I, I run. Um, I I do majority of my running before work in the morning. So um, wake up uh, you know before the rest of the family gets up so that I can get back when everyone's waking up and getting ready for camp or for. What school. time are we talking here? Um, so I I get up around five forty five. Okay. Um, you know, luckily I live in Brookline, mm-hmm. so um, and work in Davis Square, so the the commute I, I don't have much commuting time, so that's great. Um, so um, but I, I get up. You know, I, I want to be back so that as as the chaos begins in yeah. the house, I'm I'm there to to help out with that. Sure. Um, but it's also you know it's uh, every a lot of a lot of people who exercise daily will talk about how that run or that bike ride or that swim at the beginning of the day sets them up for you know not only um, you know getting that uh, getting that meta- metabolism going and, and and waking them up, but it really just sets you up for the rest of the day mm-hmm. um, with respect to being being alert. And, um, and, you know, that's, uh, that, that's something that in, in times when I, um, uh, haven't been training, uh, training really hard, I feel like I miss it. Sure. So, um, it's something that, you know, is, is just a daily habit. Yeah. As someone who I got into triathlons when I moved out to LA and I, I peaked with a 70.3 Ironman the year my daughter was born. I haven't done another Ironman since, although I, I do tend to, to, to keep up my training and you throw it throw a race or two on your calendar and it kind of also helps it helps having some goals and deadlines um to make sure you can kind of keep keep up with things but when, when i fall into um weeks where i don't train it start to feel lethargic i get a little irritable like there's it's just i'm off and so i completely get it sort of um personally um so one of the uh one of the last questions that that i like to ask is sort of what you know, what about the world you um that we haven't talked about you'd like to see change um and i want to get to that and because we're, we're going to start running up on time i think we'll have enough time to, to talk about that but i want to double click on the health and fitness stuff because you opened up a bit in the pre-podcast questionnaire about being a type 1 diabetic when did you discover that and what is it um you know, it's made you probably a bit of. A, I noticed is that a garment on your wrist? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're so you're probably you mentioned forecasting for business. So you do a lot of like forecasting and planning your health so that you can sort of really manage your your type one diabetes. Um, and and sort of quick side tangent. One of the first job I had out of Boston University was at Schwartz Communications, and I was in the healthcare practice, and I was working with a lot of um, uh, stem cell therapy companies and 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 um, blood glu- glucose meter companies. And so, the, actually, the the one of the more interesting things I did earlier in my career was when Jay Cutler it came out that Jay Cutler, the quarterback of the Denver Broncos at the time, had type one diabetes. Uh, I reached out to the, I, I was told I was crazy, but I called up the Denver Broncos training facility, uh, trainer and got him on the phone and was able to give what at the time was the world's smallest blood glucose meter to Jay Cutler. Mm-hmm. And it blew up at the pro bowl that year because, um, Peyton Manning threw it in a pool. Um, and it was, and, and anyway, so I've, I've, I've studied quite a bit about, um, there's a lot of high performance athletes with type one diabetes that for a very long time have been so good at meticulously managing their health. It's actually given them quite an edge in, in athletics. So just, I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit. And it's, it's, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future you're advising, uh, you know, a health AI analytics startup based on how much you're a student of it, but do you want to expand on that a little bit? Sure. So I, um, I was diagnosed in my senior of high school. I, it was actually that, um, talked about how this will be my 25th Boston marathon, um, I, the reason it's my 25th and not my 27th in a row is uh, I had run, I'd run one my junior year of high school and then was, um, was in some very, very heavy training my senior year. Um, and in April of that year, I started um, having some, uh, some symptoms where I was, um, I, I was losing a lot of weight and I didn't have much weight to lose. Um, and I was losing a lot of weight. I was recognizing that I couldn't see the... Um, I see the chalkboard in in class. My like vision was failing. I was uh, urinating all of the time. Um, I I I think I was in denial that I just brushed that off and just kept um, kept my heavy training and um, and uh, I the one of the other symptoms was I was um, very thirsty. A, a thirst that can't be described to anyone who hasn't had this. Um, and I it was a negative self-fulfilling prophecy in that I was running so much and so thirsty and I was getting sick of drinking water. So I started drinking grape juice, which was, you know, what was happening behind the scenes is I, you know, something happened where my pancreas gave out and that's, you know, I became diabetic, but I was drinking, drinking, drinking grape juice, which was spiking my blood sugar up even higher. And, um, Boston marathon weekend in 1995, um, I finally, I realized, you know, something is wrong here. We have to, I have have to go to the hospital. Um, Parents brought me into the hospital and that's where they, they, they said, um, I had a, had a blood sugar level of, um, about 950. Um, and the doctor said that if you weren't in such good shape, uh, you would have been in coma right now. Um, so I was, you know, I, I was right on the edge of, of disaster with this, um, but immediately get treated. Um, another, another example of being fortunate to be in the Boston area, um, is that the, the, some of the best, uh, some of the best hospitals in the world are here, but the, the world's best hospital for uh, diabetes is in, is in Boston at the Joslin Institute. Um, so quickly, you know, started, started treatment with that. And, um, you know, this is a, it's a chronic disease. So I have this all the time. It's, it's something that, there's no escaping it. It's, it's, it's with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, but over the last, you know, since I, since I was diagnosed in 1995, um, 
there also have been innovations in in this in the space around management of, of diabetes. So I, I've seen technology changes um, that have uh, that, that you know really benefit the day to day life of um, of diabetics. I, I have an insulin pump. I also have a continuous glucose monitor, um, yeah. which is what that's doing is um, rather than pricking my finger, you know, on you know. Uh, every, every once in a while and, and understanding the snapshot of what my blood sugar is at, at that at that point in time um, this is measuring continuously um, every um, every every minute or two it's it's uh, passively measuring uh, measuring what the blood glucose is sending it to the pump and modulating the um, the insulin um, that the pump is delivering so it's it's essentially starting to get on the way towards in towards an artificial pancreas mm. um, there are, all, there are a lot of um, uh, opportunities to continue to improve that um, you know, from, from an innovation product point of view there. And that's one of my, uh, one of my several investment theses is that um, there's opportunity to incorporate data and technology um, into products to um, either help people manage um, health uh, Health, whether it's whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure, um, and or uh, prevent issues yeah. from happening. You know, proactive. Right, yeah. right. So an example of yeah. that is I talked about how a continuous glucose uh, monitor is is measuring what my blood glucose is at that time and modulating how much insulin I get. So it it it, it reads, uh, you know, it reads my uh, insulin uh, uh, blood glucose level and realizes I'm too low. So pause insulin, like don't give him any more insulin. Sure. He's already too low. Or you know, my it's it's. Um, it's mid afternoon and uh, my, my blood glucose is rising, maybe give him a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's great. And, and that is making huge, huge improvements, uh, for, uh, people's man, people, you know, the, the health outcomes for people with diabetes, but imagine the, uh, where technology comes in and recognizes not only Jason's blood glucose is 150 right now, should we give him insulin or not? But his, Blood glucose level is 150. He ran this morning. It's a Monday and it's raining. Mm -hmm. And the Red Sox won last night. All those now variables. maybe yeah. maybe maybe those don't have anything to, uh, mm -hmm. to do with each other. But maybe there are um, correlations between those different variables. This is something that no human being can do on their own. No doctor can do on their own. And this is also changing constantly. So with big data and software. Using, using artificial intelligence to piece these pieces, uh, piece these elements together and make decisions uh, passively on behalf of someone. You know, this is what uh, your pancreas does, uh, Zach, um, is uses many, many different inputs um, to make decisions on, on, on whether it's giving you insulin or, um, or other, you know, the human body is, um, is, a, is a, a magical instrument and um, technology can allow for um, uh, Essentially, uh, uh, replicating what the what the human body does. So I think there's a mm -hmm. lot of opportunities there, and that's that's one of the things I look out for um, in 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 my uh, possible investment areas. Cool. Offline, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who's uh, several times over successful entrepreneur. Most recently, sold a startup to Wayfair, and then after he vested out last year, um, announced in Boston. Oh. Well, less than six months ago that he's working on a health AI startup. Um, and he was inspired to do it just based on just all the disparate like inputs and data points that his mother's healthcare providers like couldn't 
couldn't come close to even cobbling together to try to help proactively address her issues. And he's like, oh, geez, there's, this is the next, you know, this is the next frontier that I need to focus on is sort of like big data and health. Um, yeah, and he's, a, and he's, and he's a jumbo that. too. So you guys, you guys can talk about your old tough days. Um, so last question, something we haven't discussed, big problem facing the world, your father, you got a nine to six year old thinking about your generational responsibility or just, you know, and, and, and forecasting in the future, your forecaster, what, what is a big challenge facing the world right now that you're really um, perhaps hoping to participate in, uh, but certainly hoping gets addressed and, and a problem that help, you know, gets, gets solved or, um, you know, has, a, or, or has some solutions perhaps already in the works uh, just to, you know, to ensure that the world and planet that we leave um, to your children, to my child um, is uh, a better place than it even is today. Yeah, there's a lot. I think it won't get it won't get political here, and uh, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of concerning things happening with our with our planet, or you know, around climate change. Uh, but but one of those one of those areas is um, where I think there's opportunity, um, both from a you know as as an investor in in um, identifying that companies that could build to solve this problem might be good investments, but also just as a as a sort of a feel good thing around you know if if we can all help. Um, uh, you know, trigger some innovation in these spaces to solve this problem. It, that, that's a really good thing. But it's in creating sustainable foods. Um, yes. I mean, if you think about how much how much meat is eaten eaten across the world, um, and um, and and what is required to create that meat is is these cows that you know create um, the the. the the, the carbon dioxide um, created from these cows and, and various gases uh, created by these cows and also just the ability to have so many cows or right. goats or sheep um, to deliver the, the, um, the meat that the world relies on is, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to run into challenges, especially as, as populations yeah. continue to increase. Um, so when you see things from companies like Beyond Meat um, that are creating alternative uh, alternative meats, just as an example, um, you know, and another example is 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 a company I'd heard about that was creating um, the fish for sushi um, using um, seaweed, and mm. and these these things these kinds of companies and innovations will not succeed in the in the area of food if they don't taste good they mm-hmm. absolutely have to nail the actual end user product mm-hmm. but also at the same time they're also solving some problems that are, are continuing to grow um, so it's really good to see companies uh, continuing to do this and um, I think we'll see more and more uh, but you know we all we all share this earth and we all need to be thinking about Yes, we need to recycle. You know, yes, we need to uh, walk instead of drive to work. Uh, but also, are there opportunities to create new things that will also, you know, prevent some of the the, the challenges that are going to that will be in front of us? Well said. I remember when Beyond Meat was at twenty eight dollars, and now it's in the hundreds. Uh, missed, I missed out on that one. Although maybe it's not. I guess it's not too late if you're really long on Beyond Meat. Uh, Jason, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time and, um, you know, looking forward to the, the months and years uh, ahead um, of uh, a friendship. And, and, you know, as you discover um, interesting companies, you know, initiatives in the Boston area, please uh, you know, share them with me and I'll, and I'll share them with the community. Absolutely. And yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, some of those interests you mentioned. Yeah, right on. Awesome. Cheers, Boston.